Today's episode, thriller writer Andrea Bartz. I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I interview writers and other creative people about their work. Put on your headphones, close your eyes, relax, and prepare for a pleasant journey into a universe of imagination. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Andrea Bartz, author of We Were Never Here, published to be published August 3rd, 2021 by Ballantine Books. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So first, considering, you know, you have a, a bunch of ideas rolling around in your head on, on what to write, you know, write and make a novel, how did this idea rise up above the rest? Great question. It's true. I always have about, you know, 20 ideas that are rolling around at any given time. I have a huge Google document called Book Ideas, little little shreds and snips and uh, ideas. But around the time of um, when I was trying to think of my next book idea, I was finishing up my work on The Herd, the second, the second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went on vacation myself in Chile, which is where our characters begin their story. And I was in Chile's Elsie Valley, this very beautiful and somewhat remote uh, valley in the Andes. And uh, my friend and I had planned our trip through there without realizing that it was shoulder season. And therefore, no one was, stuff was kind of open, but no one else was around. Um, and, you know, they kind of rolled up the sidewalks early and there just wasn't a ton to do. And we were there for a few days. And on the first day, we bumped into the one other traveler who had made the same mistake and, and showed up there and. He was this really lovely Australian guy named Stephen. And so the three of us just became inseparable. We got we got on like a house on fire. We all got along really well. And so we were just, you know, kind of doing everything together. And he was so not creepy and not scary and, and just genuinely such a good guy that we kind of had a running joke about how he secretly was playing this, wrong, this long game to, you know, kill us and take our money and run. And we just kind of kept making jokes about that throughout the few days we spent together. And it was the last night, um, and we had picked up some Chilean wine, and we're just hanging out in our hotel suite, the hotel suite that my friend and I had, and drinking it. And someone made another joke about how Stephen was actually, you know, a killer, and we were way too trusting. And I just turned and I said, you know you've known us exactly as long as we've known you and you didn't even see me pour your glass of wine in the kitchen. So why are we all so sure that like we need to be afraid of you and not vice versa? And there's sort of a long pause and he was like, good point. And I just realized in that instance that even I, someone who's always thinking about, as a, you know, a thriller author, someone who's always thinking about um, the, the interplay of, of threats, and a victim and violence and uh even i had just taken it for granted that if somebody was going to be a killer in this equation it would be the man Mm -hmm. and so that kicked off this idea of you know what if two friends uh did go the opposite way kill a backpacker Mm -hmm. during their travels and then try to try to run try to get away with it uh and that became the origin for the entire the entire book and it just kind of hit me at the right time and i felt a lot of excitement and ideas coming out of just that initial burst of inspiration. Uh, mm. So I knew it was one worth pursuing. And it felt like a challenge because my first two books were whodunits. And I knew mm. this one would not be a whodunit. You would you would start by knowing exactly who was doing the killing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that would be a really fun change and like a, a fun challenge to write a thriller where, you know, the crime is laid out really in the first few chapters and we go from there. So the book description, though, um, 
tells me that one of the two, one of the pair isn't sure. Like it's not a team effort, but, but it is sort of a team doing in a sense. Yeah, exactly. So once I, once I knew, you know, I, I didn't think I could write an effective book of just two merry, you know, merry female killers, like running around and <laughs> taking down backpackers for fun. Like that didn't sound like the kind of psychological thrillers I like to write. Mm-hmm. So I pretty quickly was asking myself, like, what would be the scenario that would lead to two otherwise pretty normal, reasonable women finding themselves in the scenario and self-defense came to mind. Um, and especially that interplay, that sort of theme of violence against women and women as victims, women regaining their power. Um, and so I, you know, pretty quickly decided that there was going to be this element of self-defense and then to sort of keep things interesting. Um, it didn't make sense to me that they would both necessarily kill someone. I thought it was much more interesting if this was going to be a relationship driven psychological thriller, which is what I like to write. Um, if I was going to make the entire book about their friendship, then there should be some uh, sort of tension and doubt about exactly what went down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I created that by having our narrator sort of encounter the scene with this backpacker already dead um, and help with the cover up, which obviously makes her very complicit. But, um, you know, they, they have sort of this trauma bond that, you know, kicks off the book. And from there, they can start to sort of question each other and question their versions of events and um it really gave me a lot of of fuel for the 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 fire of following their friendship and making this really about the ultimate sort of codependent messed up therefore hopefully interesting female friendship between two women Mm -hmm. for some it just popped in my mind right now do you remember the case with the uh, was it the the girl and her italian boyfriend you know and, and amanda knox yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just popped. Yeah, in my Amanda head. Knox definitely gets a shout out in the book because as these women are trying to decide whether or not to call local authorities, because of course our instinct is as law-abiding citizens is we got to figure out the local equivalent of nine one one and get the cops in here. Mm-hmm. But you know, Amanda Knox that did not go so well, even though she ultimately was an innocent bystander as she claimed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's one of the cases they discuss of like we don't want to end up women locked up abroad in another country without representation rotting away in chill cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is, a, that is, I think, a real-world concern in, in many places, um, the justice systems. So you have described some of the book already. Can you go into any more detail without spoilers about the protagonists and the setting and, conf- and, and this conflict? Yeah, so, well, the real, the sort of piece of important piece of information that I have left out is that um, this trip is sort of this trip through Chile is sort of their um, reconciliation trip and Emily our narrator feels like a friendship is finally back on track because a year ago Mm. um, a remarkably similar thing happened on their trip through they were in Cambodia together and um, Emily herself was actually attacked by a guy she brought back to her room. Mm. Um, and she and Kristen sort of in self-defense had, had killed this man. So there's this unbelievable sense of like, can lightning really strike twice? Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because Emily didn't see her friend in this confrontation with the man. She's really, you know, forced to question what happened about the person that she trusts the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really fun to sort of, back the layers on this friendship and take us back to when they met. They've been best friends for over a decade. 
how has that played out um, within their their dating lives, seeing other men, and with their moving to different cities together, um, with both of them navigating their own familial relationships. Um, it was just really fun and interesting for me to go deep on this friendship that, um, you know, I think a lot of us have experienced at different times where you just have that person who is not a romantic partner, but just the most important person in the world to you, and you trust them so fully. And so it can be a real... I, I'm, I'm not going to swear, but it can be a real mind game, let's say, yeah. to um, <laughs> realize that they are, that, you know, they're maybe not who you thought they were, that you really don't know them as well as you thought you did. Do you go early in, do you go uh, into their, sort of their uh, backgrounds, like the work they do, like is either of them in in a very manual or, or maybe, are any of them law enforcement or anything like that? No, neither one is law enforcement. They're very, quote-unquote, normal-seeming young women. They're um, around 30 years old. Uh, and Emily, our narrator, is actually a project manager at a startup. And so she has a very – what they share is a very um, analytical mind. Uh, and they became very close back when they were in college when they would both nerd out on, um, like, riddles and brain teasers and mm. wordplay. Um, and so that's something that sort of – help them feel like they were in their own little world and it's still a major component of their friendship. Um, and so now as things are sort of coming to a head and getting scary, the, the, the riddles and the wordplay can sort of be seen in a more sinister light as they can kind of communicate in code and, and um, they have this own little world that can feel so cozy and so special and lovely when things are good, but that can feel very claustrophobic and suffocating um, and isolating when things are not going so well. Do uh do <laughs> in this question? Do either of the characters um do they have characteristics of you or someone you know personally? I'm assuming the murder part doesn't reflect. <laughs> the murder part is going to be a no, <laughs> but um no, it's funny. The poor the, the friend with whom I went to Chile uh, hasn't read it yet, but I keep saying like you know. Don't worry, like this character is not based on you. This, we, you and I are not murderous together. Um, but I think I share a lot of, of qualities with both of them. I think I think that's kind of true of every character I create. I um, can only really get in their heads by, um, you know, playing up and playing down certain aspects of myself. But there's still, uh, you know, perspectives that I I can at least understand and empathize. Um, in this case, I feel very connected to Emily, our narrator. She, um, you know, really, she's single and, and starting to get into her first um, serious, well, one of her first in a long time, serious romantic relationships. Um, and, you know, she's seeing how that is draining the friendship, uh, which is something I relate to, which was sort of uh, happening while I was writing this book. Um, she's analytic. She's um, asthmatic. I have asthma myself. And that sort of plays it in small ways. Um, you know, I think there's there's just a lot of ways that um, aspects of my own personality come through in characters. Um, they're very adventurous and love taking these really ambitious trips together, which is true of myself as well. Before the pandemic, I was a travel writer, so I was very regularly traveling out of the country, um, often alone or sometimes with one female friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what was inspiring the book as well in that vein of, of I give you that specific spark, but the more general spark was, People were constantly telling me, like, wow, you're so great. Wow, you went to Mexico by yourself for three weeks? Oh, I would never do that. I would never let my daughter do that. 
Hmm. Uh, you should really hmm. be careful. You should be sure that you, you know, pack X, Y, and Z to keep intruders out. Mm-hmm. And there's just a sort of constant messaging that women are responsible for their own safety and men are not responsible for their behavior. Like hmm. we, it, it's up to us women to like prevent attacks and prevent assault and prevent violence, yeah. um, which is messaging I just think is sort of absurd and obscures the real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like using, you know, subjective tense. We just t- take away um, who, you know, we, we take away who's actually, you know, perpetrating violence against women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of a theme that I explored via the story and via Emily's internal monologues because it's something I have chewed on a lot myself and thought about. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Andrea Bartz, author of We Were Never Here. You can find more information about her work at andreabartz.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So um, what about any research for the book? Like, um, I, I get, did you say you have been to the, I forget where the murder takes place, which country again? Yeah, well, so the, the two, you know, self-defense, Homicides uh, are taking place in Chile and in Cambodia, which are both places I have been. Um, And so I was very inspired, obviously, by my own travels and really wanted to sort of capture this sense of place for the readers. Um, Back when I started writing it, I had no idea that, like, we wouldn't be able to travel for so long. So hopefully sort of that, um, you know, experience of traveling via fiction will be kind of a nice escape after we've all been grounded for many months. And I know that's starting to change with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I end up, you know, I always am doing lots of sort of simultaneous threads of research as I write my books. I am not a detective nor a lawyer, mm-hmm. nor do I have um, super close sort of, you know, advisors helping me with those things. So I have to do a lot of figuring out, you know, in this case, um, international law and if someone kills someone in another country and they're not from the country, but this person and who gets, you know, just there were lots of um, sort of legal elements to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also just did some reading on, you know, trauma bonds and on, um, you know, toxic friendships and codependent friendships mm-hmm. and the conditions that can sort of bring people together for um, those really interesting and, and juicy um, relationships. Mm-hmm. And there's also a major part of a major component of the book is that Emily starts to see uh, a therapist. Mm-hmm. And so writing those scenes was very fun for me, but I had to do some research into um, how would this actually work? How would a therapist actually unpack it? I'm very lucky because my sister is a therapist and she gets sort of mm-hmm. weigh in on the verisimilitude of some of those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a lot of different threads going, but um, setting wise, a lot of it was based on my own travel experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes what you were saying, um, makes me think about sort of uh, comparing someone who might have a murderous mind versus someone who accidentally murders, you know, and then has to deal with the consequences. And I'm just thinking of something as simple as, you know, a speeding accident, you know, where someone speeds somewhere and hits a kid maybe, you know, and and normally they're not that type of person, but then they they just panic and leave and then they're a criminal, Right. you know. Right. Right. And just thinking about how traumatic that was, putting myself in that situation, what would I do? Um, you know, there's there's a line in the book that, speaking of, came from real research where Emily, she's in a point where she thinks they've sort of gotten away with it. And of course, that's 
sometimes they feel more confident than other times and the walls that are closing in on them throughout the book. Mm. But there is a point where she thinks maybe it's going to be okay. And so she does some research herself mm. and she finds the statistic that 40% of murders in the United States go unsolved. No one is ever charged like, yeah. with that crime, <laughs> which is an accurate number. And if anything, it might be higher. It's higher in a lot of cities. Yeah. And so she just does the math, and it means that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people walking around right now who have gotten away with murder, literally, and they have to deal with that. You know, the, the law will not provide the consequences, and so they have choices about how they're going to, you know, handle that and, and deal with it and move on or not. Um, and so I just really had a lot of fun putting myself in her perspective and how do we sort of reconcile? She's, she's a Midwestern girl. She's from Minnesota. She lives in Milwaukee. Um, she thinks of herself. She has this sort of self image, um, of her as a really good person. Um, and so how do you, you know, how do you deal with it when confronted with this event in your past that is so not congruent with how you view yourself? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reality that a lot of people face. For, you know, I think that's a perfect example, a hit and run, just this, this one second decision to not call 911 and then suddenly you are a criminal. Yeah, yeah. And obviously when I did that fist pump, it wasn't for the idea <laughs> that murder can, can you know, people can get away with murder. It's the character was probably, I expect she was like, ooh, that's a good thing. That's Well, she was sort of like, I'm not alone. Like, I can't yeah. talk about, I can't talk to people about it, but... I mean, yeah, she realizes she's one of many, many, many who are facing down this dilemma. And she says, I bet, I don't think they all turn themselves in or kill themselves. So if they're still living their little lives, then I guess I can too. What other choice do I have? That's interesting. Yeah. So tell me about some of the stuff that inspires your writing. Um, and that can be movies, TV, um, music, whatever. Gosh, that's such a big question. I feel like all of my life is inspiration in different ways. Mm. I was uh, a magazine editor for years before I was writing fiction. And then even after I was an editor, I was still a freelance writer. I was writing features. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at that time, I said, everything is a story idea. Um, Because any little conversation, any exchange, anything that struck me as interesting could get spun into Mm -hmm. an, an article that I assigned or that I wrote myself. And um, I think in a similar way, now that I'm a thriller writer, I feel like everything in life, any little comment, any tiny mystery that anyone else would just walk right by and and move on Mm -hmm. um, could become an entire book idea. Hence the, you know, 20 page Google document I mentioned of of story ideas, most of them very unformed at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I think I'm like an intellectual magpie and um, I have this dark streak that I think I've always had. I love um, horror. I love horror movies. Mm-hmm. As a little kid, I loved reading all the scary, you know, Goosebumps and Arl Stein, yeah. Lois Duncan, and mm-hmm. um, Christopher Pike and all the, the scary kids books, too. Um, and so anytime there's sort of this, this tension or, or um, you know, somebody didn't show up when they were supposed to or some little thing that's probably very easily explainable, I have a tendency to then quickly spin together the most morbid but interesting mm-hmm. uh, answer. It's, it's mm-hmm. never the simplest answer, which is like they're just running late and their phone's about <laughs> to die because they didn't text us. It's got to be something dramatic. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just always keeping track of 
anything from, you know, I'll be reading an article and like a single phrase will just stand out to me and I'll write that down or I'll be having exchange and um, I'll make a very dark joke about why someone's late and the reason will feel interesting to me. So I'll write it down. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm watching a TV show or reading a book and I think it will go one way and then it goes a totally different way. Sometimes I write down the, the, plan a that i thought it was mm. going to go because that would have been really cool they could in a different direction and but maybe i could write that plan a and play with that yeah. um so i just think all of life is i just think human interaction is so interesting and so there's just so much fodder for psychological thrillers and psychological fiction so when you were doing your travel writing when you were traveling did, did you find yourself sort of angling towards the more macabre or macabre or, or dark or mysterious spots in your travel locales? I think when it came to travel writing, I just, it was like the more input, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think I'm kind of a sensation seeker and I just love mm-hmm. um, novelty and things I haven't experienced before. And I actually, to a large extent, enjoy when something is so foreign that it feels sort of hard because I, I kind of get, um, I kind of get off on, on figuring it out and pushing through it and figuring out how to, you know, ride the subway in Taiwan and how to, you know, navigate the weird, uh, a complicated, you know, indoor bath in Budapest or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I like sort of the intellectual challenge mm-hmm. of traveling and I just love meeting people and interacting with them everywhere that we go. And I like sort of noting all the little ways that things are different. Um, and that, you know, people's lives play out differently than, than mine does at home. So, yeah, I think, I don't know that I necessarily was gravitating toward dark places, although that was always interesting to me when I found it. But what I loved about travel writing is that, you know, we call it one thing, we call it travel writing, but beneath that umbrella, there's food writing and there's design writing and there's, um, you know, drinks and cocktails writing and there's there's just so many different directions that you can take mm-hmm. um that you can you can take an article when you're trying to capture a place or something just interesting and unique about a place that you want other people to to experience and be able to hear about um hmm. so not so much what not so much what was scary but i really gravitate toward what is uncomfortable which i think is is related mm-hmm. and so, since we are talking about sort of horror and thrillers. Um, Mm -hmm. Were there any worrisome incidents when you travel? What what was the most worrisome incident that you came across? Maybe not that would affect you, but maybe you just saw. That's a great question. Two immediately come to mind and I'm sure I'll think of about 10 more after we hang up. But (laughs) um, I was in Uganda in uh, the Kadeko Valley. This like very beautiful, relatively, remote and undiscovered um, uh, region that's like part of the savannah. So picture like the rolling savannah. Like you can hear the lions roaring miles away as you fall asleep at night. Mm-hmm. And we went on, we took a Jeep and went on a game drive. Um, and at one point they decided it was safe and we parked and they set out a table and we had sundowners, which is, you know, cocktails. This is sun is setting. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a crazy storm broke out as we were driving back. And we got to a certain part of the road that we needed. It was it was towards the edge of the game park. We needed to drive across to get out of this game park. And the sun is set now. It's dark. Uh, so lions could begin hunting at any minute. We had seen some and photographed some not too long ago. <laughs> and um, because of this huge amount of rain, 
the entire road was washed out. It was several inches. It was several inches deep. And we were kind of like, oh, but isn't this a XYZ kind of Jeep? And they were like, no, just the frame, not the, not the motor. Yeah. <laughs> you got that. Um, and so we were freaking out and we were very aware that if we drove into it and the water was rushing too fast, it could like topple or just carry off the road. But we also could not stay in this game park overnight with actual lions. Like you hear terrible stories about people who, you know, go are camping and, you know, like camping safaris and get eaten in the night. Mm-hmm. So eventually they just decided to gun it and hope for the best. And thank God it, the water was not, was not so fast that it lifted up the wheels and we were able to get through, but like, we really did not know. And that moment when we smashed into the water and just were, you know, just felt the give underneath us from solid road, pure water was terrifying. We got out of that fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously I got out of all of this eventually, but <laughs> another like genuinely scary thing was. Uh, a friend and I were in Vietnam together, and uh, we had taken a cruise through Ha Long Bay, which is this very beautiful region uh, in the north. And it's this bay that has all of these karst land. It's called a karst landscape. It has these uh, rocks. I think there's a lot of limestone and these rock formations coming up out of the water. Um, and they're sort of weirdly shaped, and they're huge. And they're, as far as you can see, it, it's just these karst, sort of like huge stalagmites. And um, our, our cruise ship docked, and they set us off in kayaks, and they said, okay, like, be back in 45 minutes or whatever. And my friend and I, we were just chatting as we went, and we were kayaking around, and it was so beautiful. And everywhere you looked was just this, these gorgeous, you know, formations coming out of the water. And we kind of whirled around the backside of a really big one and came back, and we're like, we should probably start thinking about getting back to the cruise ship. We couldn't see it, and we went around the, that karst again, and we still couldn't see it in any direction. And it's just that horrifying moment where you realize that, like, literally every direction looks exactly the same, and at this point, we had no idea where we had come from. Um, so we were panicking. We had we knew that our time was up, and we did not see any other kayaks. They're all orange. We didn't know how we ended up so off base, but we were like, are they going to and a helicopter like how are we getting out of here so we finally picked a direction that we thought was maybe right and we were like we're just going to keep going straight mm-hmm. um and we'll keep an eye out for any signs of life whether it's our cruise ship or anything we just need to find like humans so we started kayaking and far far in the distance we saw a ship that as we got closer, we realized was not ours. They were not equipped to get a kayak back onto it. You know, we like paddled up to an actual cruise ship. Um, but they, bless them, found their one person who spoke English. He could figure out where we were supposed to be from. He, they radioed around and eventually we made it back onto the ship. But um, that was a genuinely like, oh crap moment of life flashing before our eyes. Yeah. But you said you're a thrill seeker, though. So at some level, you <laughs> looking back. <laughs> well, we survived. So it was fine. I mean, I'm a thrill seeker, but I'm also like a very practical Midwestern girl myself, too. So, you know, controlled, controlled fear. OK, discomfort because I have to figure out how to, you know, order food at a weird foreign restaurant like that good for me. That's like an accomplishment. But yeah, actual objects here. No, thank you. <laughs> Um, so have you ever searched out haunted places or, you know, 
haunted. I, much of it. I did a, I did a, a like ghost tour of Mackinac Island um, oh, off, the upper, off the upper peninsula of Michigan when I was there with my family and it was very fun. Mm-hmm. But there's not, there's something about ghost tours. You pretty, you're probably not going to see a ghost. You're probably not going to actually see something haunted. Yeah. So I tend to be really inspired by um, interesting things at places, but the actual things they say are creepy. I'm sort of like, well, there's no ghost there. Like, show me. <laughs> Wake me up when you've got an actual spooky thing for me to see. <laughs> um, Do you love abandoned, abandoned buildings, though? Like abandoned, uh, you know, just remains of buildings and complexes. I was I was in Puerto Rico not too long ago climbing around what was once um, I think a big school and that was very creepy and very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are really interesting um, to see. So, what would you say the aesthetic of this book would be and, and or, or if it had a musical soundtrack, what would it be? Like, what would be the pacing and feel of it? Yeah. Well, so I, I describe the book as if all of it were in Chile, but actually only the first third or so um, is even abroad. And then the rest is pretty much the rest of the book mm-hmm. for the most part takes place in Wisconsin. Um, and so I think those are sort of the two settings that um, determine, you know, the feel of the book. And obviously they're very different. There's, you know, vacation Emily and vacation Kristen when they're in Chile. And that would very much be, you know, them dancing to reggaeton on the, and, and bachata on, you know, a patio, a jungly patio and eating corn nuts and drinking local beer. And like, I feel like there's sort of that like whole thing baseline feel to their trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course everything goes pretty horribly awry with this dead body. Um, and they escape, which involves a lot of relief. And then I think the clock kind of resets with the, the pacing resets because, they get home. She gets home to Wisconsin and there's a feeling of like, well, now what? Mm-hmm. And that's where the creeping dread begins. And it's just sort of like every chapter, the noose gets a little bit tighter and the web spin a little bit tighter. And so I think from that point, it gets more of a cinematic, um, what starts, what starts out as ordinary becomes a, a soundtrack feel that, you know, starts out ordinary and then just becomes more and more and more frenzied and claustrophobic and, um, the walls closing in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that sort of drum beat suspense just gets louder and faster and crazier, but it's also very sort of internal and very stifling. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Andrea Bartz, author of We Were Never Here. You can find more information about her work at andreabartz.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Let me turn to how, how, how you do your writing. Um, is there anything out of the ordinary you would say you do to um, either complete a draft or the final version? So I am a panther, not a plotter, as they say. I write without an outline. I have um, an idea. I have sort of the hook for the beginning, and I generally know what will happen for the first, third, half of the book if I'm lucky and I have no idea how it will end. So basically I'm really good at like throwing everything up in the air and I'm really bad at then having to land those things. Uh. So the last half of the writing, I'm just in a sense of panic every day, which is where I am right now in my fourth book. Uh. Um, 
So I don't recommend it if you are capable. I think if writers are capable of outlining, it will probably make their lives a lot less stressful. It's mm. just not how we work. Um, but something I do that's sort of unusual, I um, if I get stuck or if I'm just not sure how to sort of solve a plot puzzle or um, where to take the story next, um, I'll try some weird things to just sort of like jog my brain out of this path that it's feeling kind of doomed on. So um, I'll, I'll pull tarot cards, for example, and do a tarot reading, and I'll ask cards like, what should Emily do next? For example, what should my character do next? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, tarot cards by definition are very general, and so they can sort of, they can feel right in the sense of like, oh, I never thought about connecting it to, you know, oh, this this character or her focusing on this instead or just kind of uh, taking the cards, interpreting the cards in a way that gets me to think about it in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I'll do is I will start to write a scene that I'm really stuck on from a totally different perspective. I'll write it with a totally stupid element involved, like aliens invading in the background. I'll try to do it in a totally different genre. What would this scene look like if it were a rom-com instead of a thriller? Um, just like these little games I play with myself to just sort of bust past the, um, the you know, psychological paralysis that you can get with, with writer's block or with being feeling really stuck on your own book. Um, and so any of those things, like, I don't use, obviously there are not aliens suddenly invading at that point in the book, right. but um, <laughs> having having sort of that, that, giving it that fun, playful, like anything goes feel often uh, leads me to some kind of breakthrough that I can't actually use. And then it feels much easier to like, you know, okay, highlight, delete that weird scene I wrote and I'll write it with this new thing I figured out in mind. Mm-hmm. So thinking about sort of the two different feels of the, of this book, um, and then thinking about travel writing, you know, cause it's sort of its own, I, I feel like travel writing has its own sort of way of presenting information. Does the first half of this book, it seems to me would be more like tra- have travel writing elements, whereas the second half would not. Is that, is that, can I say that or, or what would you say in response? No, but I would agree. I think they both have travel writing feels in the sense that I'm still, uh, hopefully capturing a place. Mm-hmm. So after Chile, as I said, Emily is in Wisconsin and she's based in Milwaukee. And um, at one point she and Kristen take a long trip up to um, Kristen's family's cottage on a lake in northern Wisconsin, um, which is a location that is obviously very different from Chile, but in some ways has similarities. It's um, really beautiful, like stargazing there and they feel kind of secluded and, you know, there's things in common. Um, and I also, I'm from Milwaukee, and so I also really enjoyed setting part of the book there and trying to capture just sort of what makes Milwaukee unique and gives it this sort of offbeat charm. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, travel writers aren't only allowed to write about, quote unquote, um, you know, incredible and out of reach places. Like there's definitely travel writers writing about Milwaukee and about Northern Wisconsin too. So, um, I think they have very different feels, but I think um, I had fun sort of finding the parallels between these very different settings. And I think um, in all cases, I was trying to sort of give a strong sense of place and sort of place as a character. And that's true whether we were in Chile or whether we were in, you know, the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. 
How has your approach to writing changed over time? And normally I ask this of authors, you know, when they're, if you're on your third, you're on your third book, um, that they would have one response, but you've been a writer and editor for so long, you know, what's been that progression, that change over time? That's a great question. Well, certainly my debut, The Lost Night, I wrote, you know, in my free time when I was still a magazine editor. And mm-hmm. it was just sort of a side project I was working on. And we'll see where this goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had way less idea what I was doing. But I also um, had sort of a sense of freedom with it where if I wanted to give up and I wanted to never let anyone read it, that was a possibility. <laughs> and so from book two onward, and now I'm um, working on writing my fourth, Mm-hmm. Um, I, they were, the books were already sold. I knew that they were going to hopefully be published, but at minimum be read by my editor and agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, suddenly writing that is intended for everyone and not just written for you and maybe other people will see it. has a very different feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of like the nuts and bolts, I've gotten a lot better at, um, like, pacing and just uh, starting to understand like just just by virtue of doing it more the same way that like if you had played tennis for five years you're going to be better at tennis than you were your year five than you were at year one mm-hmm. um but i think i've just gotten a better grasp of um how to uh hit the right beats at the right time and how to make sure that the beats feel surprising and yet um inevitable and satisfying and and how to make reveals feel earned um, and I think a lot of that just has come from the experience of doing it. But, um, yeah, it's not, people often ask, like, how does your journalism background feed into your writing? Um, and it's really hard for me to answer because, like, I've, I've never tried writing fiction without a background in magazine writing. Like, this is the only, you know, biography I have. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it would be otherwise. Yeah. But um, I think I think the dedication and liability to just, it and like you know butt in seat fingers on keyboard like that is how you write a book mm-hmm. um the ability to create even when you don't feel like it even when you're not inspired even if you're sick even if you're hungover even if you're whatever like this is what you have to do to get to the end result mm-hmm. uh that mentality has been very much drilled into me since the days of magazine editing and writing um working under deadline and accepting edits and not, there's a lot of like transferable skills and sort of an ups and bolts way um, but I think in terms of the actual more creative side of things, I think where they feel really similar is what we discussed before about, um, finding just teeny, always being on the lookout for teeny little nuggets that excite me in some way and how can I incorporate those? And, um, you know, someone will, someone will phrase something in a really interesting way in conversation and then I can work that into a scene, like even, even down in a micro level. Um, I'm just always looking for little details about people that I find really interesting and that I um, enjoy observing and then conveying those in, in a fictional setting. So before um, pacing it and the reveal became sort of more instinctual for you, um, when you were practicing it, like how do you practice something like that? How, how do you get a sense that you're doing it right or, or not? So I think for me, for the most part, reveals, even before I was good at them would come organically mm. because, because I write without an outline. So a surprise mm. for the reader is very often a surprise <laughs> for me as well. Mm. 
And so when a, when a, you know, a Goodreads review says, ooh, I saw that twist coming from page one, I'm like, ooh, can you tell me what's supposed to happen for my next book? Because I didn't see it coming. <laughs> um, but I think what I've gotten better at is subconsciously queuing up twists better. So now when I have a great idea for a reveal or a twist, it's like, oh my gosh, I set that up perfectly and I didn't even realize it. Awesome. Way to go subconscious. Whereas when I was working on my first book, I would have this idea for a new direction, you know, to go or for a way for the story to really change direction. Um, but it would be out of nowhere. And so then I would need to go back and find, you know, sort of manually go through and find ways to seed it so that it felt earned. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and now I think that happens a little bit more organically just from having done it more times. Um, but it's still hard, and that's the reason that, like, beta readers, I need beta readers to create partners, because, like, when you're writing particularly a thriller, anything that's sort of trafficking in, in you know, mysterious elements and withheld information or information um, sort of strategically revealed to the reader, you, as the author, can't possibly totally grasp what's obvious and what's subtle, um, because you know everything, so... You yeah. can accidentally be too heavy-handed or you can accidentally be too subtle um, and you just need other people with fresh eyes to sort of help you gauge. And I think um, learning from my editor's notes and from my crit, crit partner's notes um, has helped me to just get more of a sense of that and to do it, again, a little more organically uh, to sort of trust uh, that I can instinctually give the right amount of hints without um, being too obvious or too subtle. Um, and same thing with red herrings, with sort of properly running red herrings throughout an entire book mm. um, and spreading them in. So I think practice helps there too, but that had to come from, and I still very much need fresh eyes who don't um, who don't see where it's going so that they can tell me what is a very exciting and, and thrilling and shocking twist and what is like a big WTF moment. <laughs> So what uh, what has been your favorite of the three books? Um, have you done short stories? Uh, I have not really done short stories. So no, these are these are sort of my three, um, yeah, fictional masterpieces. I mean, you, I gave my tennis analogy before. I think that We Were Never Here is my best book, and I think The Herd was um, the best book. Every book I would like it to be the best thing I've written yet. Um, because I keep doing this, so what's my excuse to get worse? I should only be getting better. Um, but yeah, the, the Lost Night, my debut, has a very special place in my heart, and I still love it. But if I were to write it now, there's probably things I would do differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Herd, I thought, was more complex and showed um, me challenging myself. And um, just mechanically, you know, I went from a single point of view to dual POV. It just um, has more more characters, more, I think, a more intricate whodunit plot um and then we were never here um as i mentioned it was it's the first thriller i've written that's not a whodunit and not a traditional mystery um and i think it's kind of where i push myself the most too um on on themes that matter to me and on sort of threading through um i don't know messaging that i think is really important but that i would not have been able to do without it feeling heavy-handed or uh shoehorned in before um, so I think, yeah, that's a really long answer to say, I think we were never here is my favorite. I do think it's the best book yet that I've written. Actually, I forgot to, so I was going to ask who your favorite character to write was. 
still, still an interesting answer, but yeah, I was focused on the, the characters specifically. Oh, my favorite character to write. Gosh, I love them all so much. I don't know that I can even answer that. Um, How about the easiest one to write? Well, writing is always hard and terrible and a lot of moments of like, why do I do this to myself? So I don't know that any were easy. Um, probably the voice that I enjoyed writing the most was uh, a character named Katie. She's one of the two narrators for The Herd, mm-hmm. um, which is about uh, an exclusive elite Akima co-working space uh, who's very glamorous and enigmatic founder goes missing the night of the glitzy event, uh, leaving two of her very close friends to try to figure out where she went. Hmm. And one of those two um, friends is Katie, one of our narrators, and she's a journalist, and she's just sort of, um, she shoots from the hip. She likes to get, a, you know, likes to say shocking things and get people laughing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even in her internal monologue, she's always sort of, making jokes and using sarcasm to sort of deal with a stressful and difficult and in some cases very scary scenario, which is her close friend is missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was just fun because I feel like I have to sort of edit myself and censor myself sometimes and not reveal all the things I'm saying in my head. But with her, I could have Katie say them in her internal monologue, uh, internal monologue and, um, She's still not saying them out loud, but she can say some um, pretty funny zingers. So she was probably the most fun voice to capture. But, gosh, I love all my, especially my narrators. I love all my narrators so much. And they're all so flawed and so, quote, unquote, unlikable. But I just love them. Hmm. And so you might guess my next question would be, who who has been the hardest character to write? The most difficult voice to, to sort of connect with? I think it took me a long time to understand Emily, the, who is the narrator of We Were Never Here, mm. um, because, because she does such, you know, unbelievable stuff. She finds herself in a scenario that we would all hope to never find ourselves in, mm-hmm. you know, there with a dead body in a hotel room on vacation. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> she, she makes choices and she listens to this best friend of hers whom she really loves. And I just, I knew that people would read it. And if I didn't get it right, people were just going to say, she's an idiot. She's a pushover. She, Hmm. I don't understand why she did anything she did. I don't understand why she would listen to Kristen, who's clearly, um, you know, toxic or bad for her or whatever. And I didn't totally understand why she would do these things. I would hope that I wouldn't. Um, I'm, tend to not be too much of a pushover in my own friendships and relationships. If anything, I can kind of be like the, the domineering one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a little bit hard to get in her head and really understand like why she would make the decisions she makes and um, why she would be so loving and trustful of um, and, and trusting towards this, best friend of hers why they would even you know adore each other and and be best friends for so long Mm -hmm. um so it took me a long time to crack her personality as well as the relationship um and hopefully hopefully i've done it and then people can sort of say you know i don't i don't necessarily agree with her i wouldn't do the same things but i understand why she did Mm -hmm. so when when you're getting your um this book edited were there many parts that you had to cut out or 
or add to? I was just thinking about this because I was trying to think about like, do I have deleted scenes or like alternate endings or anything like that to share? Um, you know, Sunday share is this book once this book's actually out in the world. Mm-hmm. And the short answer is it feels to me like it changed so dramatically, but when I actually look at it on a scene by scene um level, the content and especially the emotional timbre of almost every single scene got fiddled with mm-hmm. in order to really master that friendship between Emily and Kristen and also all these other relationships. The therapist with Chris, with Emily, Emily with her new boyfriend with this, you know, relationship she's embarking on. There was so much sort of fiddling to do with the emotional timbre mm-hmm. um, and the motivation and, you know, sort of how that was driving the whole story. But the actual sort of, you know, stepping stones of this scene where they're bowling and that's the location and this scene where they're at brunch and this person's there and that person's there and this scene, like that actually really did not change. Um, so it felt like a massive rewrite, but it wasn't like, oh, cut out all of X and start over. It was like really go into every single scene um, and make every line work as hard as possible and like really show their personalities, characters' personalities through every gesture, every line of dialogue, everything available to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, it was a huge undertaking, but um, I was just, I was just telling my sister this, my, my editor, when she gave me my first round of developmental notes, kind of acted like great news. Like I really only have like one note, maybe a few other small things, but there's really just one note. And I was like, Oh, I nailed it. So easy. But then that note was, I want you to completely change, um, essentially like the emotional timbre of the relationship between these two women throughout. And so like, wait, that's a huge note. It might only be one, but that means changing everything will change. Um, so it was it was a lot of fiddling, but on sort of a micro level versus like chopping and removing and doing surgery mm-hmm. um, in a more macro way. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so now a bit of a whimsical question. When you were young, was there a power, technology, or fictional setting that you either wanted to have or you wanted to live in or be part of? I had a wild imagination, so I am sure the answer is yes. I just need <laughs> to think about what. Did you, you and your friends play in like, you didn't have like a fictional setting that you'd go outside and pretend you were living in such and such. Yeah, we definitely did. My sister, I mean, my sister and myself were always building, we're always playing like sort of elaborate games of, of make believe. And we would put a bunch of benches together in the backyard and we would play ship and we would create, I think we were, I don't know if we were pirates or just like boatmen or what, but we would have (laughs) elaborate scenarios and there would be storms and there would be i think there actually were pirates attacking and like Mm. we you know would just for days and days um be able to keep this like extended make-believe going Mm. um but i think i always i think invisibility was was like a really fascinating idea to me Mm. um because even as a little kid i was like pretty sensitive and i really liked observing people um and trying to trying to understand other people and sort of put myself in there perspective and and i mean huge job that now i write psychological thrillers <laughs> but i think i was really sort of frustrated by the idea that i was limited to my own five senses and you know being inside of this this body and if i was somewhere then people wouldn't say as much in front of me hmm. um and so i i think i can remember like thinking invisibility would be a very 
handy way to, you know, just hear more and learn more and understand more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, you know, other superpower that probably everyone says is that I just thought it'd be really cool to fly and I still do. And I still, mm-hmm. if I'm having a, a lucid dream, if I'm dreaming and I suddenly right. realize I'm dreaming every single time I'm instantly like, we're doing it. We're flying. Look, I'm, I'm like, that's like immediately where my brain goes. Like, all right, that's it up in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Gotta fly while we can. Cause we can't do this. Um, in the waking life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes, so did you get into travel writing because of these motivations, do you think, or did you just kind of fall into it in a sense? It might be a chicken and egg kind of question because I was freelance, which meant I had more time to travel and I had just always loved travel, mm-hmm. probably for a lot of these reasons mentioned. And so there was a while where they were very separate and I was traveling in my free time and I was freelance writing for my day job. And finally I was sort of like, duh, I should try combining these two. And, you know, then I had to start like networking with travel editors and meeting people at outlets and, and doing sort of the practical stuff to be able to write about mm-hmm. um, this, this passion of mine. But, yeah, I think I think this, this desire to this sort of like quiet underlying frustration that I only get to experience life one way as mm-hmm. this one person um, probably is what inspires me to write these books and also what inspires me to want to just see how other people live and understand and imagine how life could be so different for, you know, somebody born in Cambodia and somebody born in Iceland and somebody born in Seattle, Washington and me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll ask one more travel question. I love travel. So I'll just ask one more. Where, where have you oh, not- I love it. I can tell you're a passionate <laughs> traveler. Um, I don't travel as much as I'd like to, but um, certainly a lot in my imagination <laughs> at a minimum. Um, where, where have you not gone yet that you want to? There are so many places I would absolutely love to go. Um, well, my girlfriend and I are going the this uh, summer with Labor Day to Iceland, and mm. nobody can believe I haven't been to Iceland because I've been to like much yeah. weirder places. Like you've been to the Republic of Georgia, and you haven't been to Iceland. Yeah. Every American's been to Iceland, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's been on my list for such a long time, and I'm so excited, and we're just going for fun, and it's not for travel writing, and mm-hmm. um, I've just heard it's so sort of magical, and you can feel this like, incredible energy everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and so I cannot wait to do that. So that was my that was my cheating answer, because I actually am going there soon, but yeah. that one's been high on my list for a long time. And I love what they call, what well, Nordy or, or Scandi mysteries, you know, so, you know. And I, I've read quite a few set in a few set in Iceland. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's a cool. Seems yeah, like a cool they've spot. got. I feel like I'm gonna like those people. I think they're like keen observers too, and they write they write really good mysteries. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. So, um, did you have any difficulties uh, finishing or publishing this book? Apart from well, originally, so- originally, yeah, uh, in a logistical way, this book was supposed to come out earlier. Um, I pretty much kept up with all my deadlines, but it ended up getting moved because my last book, The Herd, came out late March 2020. Remember, nothing else was going on then. Um, (laughs) And so that came out, and so they pushed back my next book with sort of this logic of like, we don't want you to have, you know, another book coming out in the pandemic, and they pushed (laughs) back the paperback release of that. And here we are, 
Um, and so it has been a bummer to, you know, for example, I had to cancel that book tour. And for this book, I'm going to be doing some virtual events, which I'm super excited about, but like not doing an in-person tour and like that's a real blow because that's the part of, of being an author that I really love and connecting with readers and meeting people is such a fun part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was difficult, but, um, no, I mean, it was a hard book to write because every book is hard to write because writing books is hard, mm-hmm. but I, um, you know, kind of kept myself accountable and stayed on schedule and I'm excited for it to finally be out in the world in August. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say surprised, but the book tours are still being, I guess I shouldn't be surprised they're limited, but I, I would think at this point things are loosened up. I guess it depends where in the country we're talking about. Yeah, I think, you know, my sort of understanding was, well, book tours are generally planned so far in advance, something oh. like six months in advance. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, now, if I was planning it now for next month, maybe it would be. Maybe it would be doable, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, for example, my virtual launch is going to be with Books Are Magic, hosting, mm-hmm. uh, and my conversation partner will be Caroline Kepnes, who wrote the You series, and she's based in L.A. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like they could just say, wait, forget virtual, let's just do it in person, everyone come in, because, like, these, they're, they're scheduling and setting up these events to be run virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is interesting. I think there's some hesitation from the bookstores, and there's some hesitation from publishers and um i'm just like very excited for when book people can all get together again and and yeah talk about books in person mm-hmm. do you want to say anything about this current book you're writing um can you i don't think so no not yet this okay. one yes okay. <laughs> okay can i ask if it's going to be a mystery or thriller can you say that much or will i keep... can't say that much and yes it will be a thriller it will still be i guess i will say this um for those who tend to enjoy my book for um, ambiguously guilty leads and very interesting and complex um, female relationships, this will definitely be in line with those those themes again. Okay. okay. Still very much a me thriller. Uh, uh, very much a... A me thriller. Oh. Very much an Andrea Barth thriller. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, where can people find you online? I am on... Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok, that one's new, oh. uh, at Andy Bart, mm-hmm. so A-N-D-I-B-A-R-T-Z, mm-hmm. and I'm on Facebook at Andrea Bart's author, and my website is andreabart.com, um, and I love hearing from people, you know, tweet at me, slide into my DMs, use the contact me form, um, I would yeah, be delighted to hear from anyone who uh, is interested in the book. Are, are many authors on TikTok? I'm curious what the marketing uh, plan is for TikTok. Certainly no plan. I just was <laughs> bored in the house sometime over over uh, the spring and decided to sign up. And it's been very fun. There aren't that many authors on it from what I can tell, but there are a lot of book talkers, as we call them. Book mm-hmm. talk, like T-O-K. Uh, there's tons of people who read and review and share their thoughts on different books and share recommendations. And there's this massive community of book talkers. Hmm. So I'm one of the relatively rare authors, I think, on it. Um, I'm sure there's plenty others I haven't seen yet. Um, but, you know, I have like 3,000 followers and there's like book talkers who have 30,000 followers who have this really robust community of people just talking about books and 
what they're reading and what they're excited about. Um, so I think it's actually really fun for readers. And it's just fun for me because I'm doing a lot of sort of, um, you know, writing tips and advice and sort of behind the scenes of like what it is like to be a full-time author and the um, nuts and bolts and, and sort of daily grind of doing it and what I'm, you know, discussing with my editor and how those things are coming together. So hmm. um, I thought I would hate it and I thought I was way too old for it, but it's actually quite fun. That's my plug for TikTok. What's the time limit on those TikTok posts? So unlike something like Snapchat, uh, they stay up forever. They can be as long as typically a minute. I think they just introduced a feature where you can do up to a three-minute video. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most popular ones are like 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. So I, for the most part, if I'm giving like a writing tip, it'll just be like a very quick 15-second, um, you know. Mm. I made one about using tarot to, to butt test writer's block like you and I discussed, things like that. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah. So even the book review, I think you just said, sorry, um, the, even the book reviews, just 15 seconds, like, hey, I love this book because of blah, 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 done. End of TikTok video. I think, yeah, they're really quick. And there's there's people doing, and gosh, I wish I could think of her name, but there's there's um, someone who does these really interesting quick videos as from the perspective of the main, one of the main characters. Um, oh, wow. So she'll say, you know, I couldn't wait to join this exclusive all-female co-working space called The Herd, but then my best friend and his glamorous founder disappeared, and they think da-da-da, and she'll just sort of do these very quick, um, almost like like trailers for them, which is cool. Um, but yeah, most of them are 15 seconds, up to a minute, sometimes like 30 seconds, hmm. um, and people are finding out about a lot of books that way, and it's like this really engaged community. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is interesting. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? (laughs) Um, No, I just, yeah, really appreciate all your questions. And um, yeah, I I hope that anyone who's maybe interested in, you know, feminist relationship driven psychological thrillers would take a look at The Lost Night Suffered and We Were Never Here. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Christian Cantrell, author of Scorpion, a sci-fi techno-thriller. Hit the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want more interviews with writers and creative people, or to get daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube and Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with military historians or get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez War Scholar on Instagram and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyinspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon. Keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.